Chapter 44, Part 4 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Part 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Ringeth. When Justinian ascended the throne, the reformation of the ju Roman jurisprudence was an arduous but indispensable task. In the space of ten centuries, the infinite variety of laws and legal opinions had filled many thousand volumes, which no fortune could purchase and no capacity could digest. Books could not easily be found, and the judges, poor in the midst of riches, were reduced to the exercise of their illiterate discretion. The subjects of the Greek provinces were ignorant of the language that disposed of their lives and properties and the barbarous dialect of the Latins was imperfectly studied in the academies of Berytus and Constantinople. As an Illyrian soldier, that idiom was familiar to the infancy of Justinian. His youth had been instructed by the lessons of jurisprudence, and his imperial choice selected the most learned civilians of the East to labor with their sovereign in the work of reformation. The theory of professors was assisted by the practice of advocates and the experience of magistrates and the whole undertaking was animated by the spirit of Tribonian. This extraordinary man, the object of so much praise and censure, was a native of Sede in Pamphylia, and his genius, like that of Bacon, embraced as his own all the business and knowledge of the age. Tribonian composed, both in prose and verse, on a strange diversity of curious and abstruse subjects, a double panegyric of Justinian, and the life of the philosopher Theodotus, the nature of happiness and the duties of government, Homer's catalogue and the four-and-twenty sorts of meter, the astronomical canon of Ptolemy, the changes of the months, the houses of the planets, and the harmonic system of the world. To the literature of Greece he added the use of the Latin tongue. The Roman civilians were deposited in his library and in his mind, and he most assiduously cultivated those arts which opened the road of wealth and preferment. From the bar of the Praetorian prefects, he raised himself to the honors of quaestor, of consul, and of master of the offices. The council of Jerusalem listened to his eloquence and wisdom, and envy was mitigated by the gentleness and affability of his manners. The reproaches of impiety and avarice have stained the virtue or the reputation of Trebonian. In a bigoted and persecuting court, the principal minister was accused of a secret aversion to the Christian faith, and was supposed to entertain the sentiments of an atheist and a pagan, which have been imputed inconsistently enough to the last philosophers of Greece. His avarice was more clearly proved, and more sensibly felt. If he were swayed by gifts in the administration of justice, the example of Bacon will again occur. Nor can the merit of Trebonian atone for his baseness if he degraded the sanctity of his profession and if laws were every day enacted, modified, or repealed for the base consideration of his private emolument. In the sedition of Constantinople, his removal was granted to the clamors, perhaps to the just indignation, of the people. But the quester was speedily restored. Until the hour of his death he possessed, above twenty years, the favor and confidence of the emperor. His passive and dutiful submission had been honored with the praise of Justinian himself, whose vanity was incapable of discerning how often that submission degenerated into the grossest adulation. 
Trebonian adored the virtues of his gracious master. The earth was unworthy of such a prince, and he affected a pious fear that Justinian, like Elijah or Romulus, would be snatched into the air and translated alive to the mansions of celestial glory. If Caesar had achieved the reformation of the Roman law, his creative genius, enlightened by reflection and study, would have given to the world a pure and original system of jurisprudence. Whatever flattery might suggest, the emperor of the East was afraid to establish his private judgment as the standard of equity. In the possession of legislative power, he borrowed for the aid of time and opinion, and his laborious compilations are guarded by the sages and legislatures of past times. Instead of a statue cast in a simple mode by the hand of an artist, the works of Justinian represent a tessellated pavement of antique and costly, but too often of incoherent fragments. In the first year of his reign, he directed the faithful Tribonian and nine learned associates to revise the ordinances of his predecessors, as they were contained since the time of Adrian in the Gregorian, Hermogenian, and Theodosian codes, to purge the errors and contradictions, to retrench whatever was obsolete or superfluous, and to select the wise and salutary laws best adapted to the practice of the tribunals and the use of his subjects. The work was accomplished in fourteen months, and the twelve books or tables which the new Decembers produced might be designed to imitate the labors of their Roman predecessors. The new Code of Justinian was honored with his name and confirmed by his royal signature. Authentic transcripts were multiplied by the pens of notaries and scribes. They were transmitted to the magistrates of the European, the Asiatic, and afterwards the African provinces, and the law of the empire was proclaimed on solemn festivals at the doors of churches. A more arduous operation was still behind. To extract the spirit of jurisprudence from the decisions and conjectures, the questions and disputes of the Roman civilians. Seventeen lawyers, with Tribonian at their head, were appointed by the emperor to exercise an absolute jurisdiction over the works of their predecessors. If they had obeyed his commands in ten years, Justin would have been satisfied with their diligence. And the rapid composition of the digest of Pandex in three years will deserve the praise or censure according to the merit of the ex execution. From the library of Tribonian, they chose forty, the most eminent civilians of former times. Two thousand treatises were comprised in an abridgment of fifty books, and it has been carefully recorded that three millions of lines or sentences were reduced in this abstract to the moderate number of one hundred and fifty thousand. The addition of this great work was delayed a month after that of the Institutes, and it seemed reasonable that the elements should precede the digest of the Roman law. As soon as the emperor had approved their labors, he ratified by his legislative power the speculations of these private citizens. Their commentaries, on the Twelve Tables, the Perpetual Edict, the Laws of the People, and the Decrees of the Senate, succeeded to the authority of the text, and the text was abandoned as a useless, though venerable, relic of antiquity. The Code, the Pandex, and the Institutes were declared to be the legitimate system of civil jurisprudence. They alone were admitted into the tribunals, and they alone were taught in the academies of Rome, Constantinople, and Berytus. Justinian addressed to the Senate and provinces his eternal oracles, and his pride, 
under the mask of piety, ascribed the consummation of this great design to the support and inspiration of the deity. Since the emperor declined the fame and envy of original composition, we can only require at his hands method choice and fidelity, the humble, though indispensable, virtues of a compiler. Among the various combinations of ideas, it is difficult to assign any reasonable preference. But as the order of Justinian is different in his three works, it's possible that all may be wrong, and it is certain that two cannot be right. In the selection of ancient laws, he seems to have viewed his predecessors without jealousy, and with equal regard. The series could not ascend above the reign of Adrian, and the narrow distinction of paganism and Christianity, introduced by the superstition of Theodosius, had been abolished by the consent of mankind. But the jurisprudence of the Pandex is circumscribed within a period of a hundred years, from the perpetual edict to the death of Severus Alexander. The civilians who lived under the first Caesars are seldom permitted to speak, and only three names can be attributed to the age of the Republic. The favorite of Justinian, it has been fiercely urged, was fearful of encountering the light of freedom and the gravity of Roman sages. Trebonian condemned to oblivion the genuine and native wisdom of Cato, the Scaevolas, and Sulpicius, while he invoked spirits more congenial to his own, the Syrians, Greeks, and Africans, who flocked to the imperial court to study Latin as a foreign tongue and jurisprudence as a lucrative profession. But the ministers of Justinian were instructed to labor, not for the curiosity of antiquarians, but for the immediate benefit of his subjects. It was their duty to select the useful and practical parts of the Roman law, and the writings of the old republicans, however curious or excellent, were no longer suited to the new system of manners, religion, and government. Perhaps, if the preceptors and friends of Cicero were still alive, our candor would acknowledge that, except in purity of language, their intrinsic merit was excelled by the school of Papinian and Ulpian. The science of the laws is the slow growth of time and experience, and the advantage both of method and materials is naturally assumed by the most recent authors. The civilians of the reign of the Antonines had studied the works of their predecessors. Their philosophic spirit had mitigated the rigor of antiquity, simplified the forms of proceeding, and emerged from the jealousy and prejudice of the rival sects. The choice of the authorities that composed the Pandex depended on the judgment of Tribonian. But the power of his sovereign could not absolve him from the sacred obligations of truth and fidelity. As the legislator of the empire, Justinian might repel the acts of the Antonines, or condemn as seditious the free principles which were maintained by the last of the Roman lawyers. But the existence of past facts is placed beyond the reach of despotism. And the emperor was guilty of fraud and forgery, when he corrupted the integrity of their text, inscribed with their venerable names the words and ideas of his servile reign, and suppressed by the hand of power the pure and authentic copies of their sentiments. The changes and in interpolations of Tribonian and his colleagues are excused by the pretense of uniformity, but their cares have been insufficient, and the antinomies or contradictions of the code and pandex still exercise the patience and subtlety of modern civilians. A rumor, devoid of evidence, has been propagated by the enemies of Justinian, 
that the jurisprudence of ancient Rome was reduced to ashes by the author of the Pandex, from the vain persuasion that it was now either false or superfluous. Without usurping an office so invidious, the emperor might safely commit to ignorance and time the accomplishments of this destructive wish. Before the invention of printing and paper, the labor and the materials of writing could be purchased only by the rich, and it may reasonably be computed that the price of books was a hundredfold their present value. Copies were slowly multiplied and cautiously renewed. The hopes of profit tempted the sacrilegious scribes to erase the characters of antiquity, and Sophocles or Tacitus were obliged to resign the parchment to missiles, homilies, and the golden legend. If such was the fate of the most beautiful compositions of genius, what stability could be expected for the dull and barren works of an obsolete science? The books of jurisprudence were interesting to few and entertaining to none. Their value was connected with present use, and they sunk forever as soon as that use was superseded by the innovations of fashion, superior merit, or public authority. In the age of peace and learning, between Cicero and the last of the Antonines, many losses had been already sustained, and some luminaries of the school or forum were known only to the curious by tradition and report. Three hundred and sixty years of disorder and decay accelerated the progress of oblivion, and it may fairly be presumed that of the writings which Justinian is accused of neglecting, many were no longer to be found in the libraries of the East. The copies of Papinian or Ulpian, which the reformer had proscribed, were deemed unworthy of future notice. The twelve tables and praetorian edicts insensibly vanished, and the monuments of ancient Rome were neglected or destroyed by the envy and ignorance of the Greeks. Even the Pandects themselves have escaped with difficulty and danger from the common shipwreck, and criticism has pronounced that all the editions and manuscripts of the West are derived from one original. It was transcribed at Constantinople in the beginning of the 7th century, was successively transported by the accidents of war and commerce to Amalfi, Pisa, and Florence, and is now deposited as a sacred relic in the ancient palace of the Republic. It is the first care of a reformer to prevent any future reformation. To maintain the text of the Pandex, the Institutes, and the Code, the use of ciphers and abbreviations was rigorously proscribed. And as Justinian recollected that the perpetual edict had been buried under the weight of commentators, he denounced the punishment of forgery against the rash civilians who should presume to interpret or pervert the will of their sovereign. The scholars of Curtius, of Bartolus, of Cujacius, should blush for their accumulated guilt, unless they dare to dispute his right of binding the authority of his successors and the native freedom of the mind. But the emperor was unable to fix his own inconstancy, and while he boasted of renewing the exchange of Diomede, of transmuting brass into gold, discovered the necessity of purifying his gold from the mixture of baser alloy. Six years had not elapsed from the publication of the code before he condemned the imperfect attempt by a new and more accurate edition of the same work, which he enriched with two hundred of his own laws and fifty decisions of the darkest and most intricate points of jurisprudence. Every year, or, according to Procopius, each day of his long reign, 
was marked by some legal innovation. Many of his acts were rescinded by himself. Many were rejected by his successors. Many have been obliterated by time. But the number of sixteen edicts and one hundred and sixty-eight novels has been admitted into the authentic body of the civil jurisprudence. In the opinion of a philosopher superior to the prejudices of his profession, these incessant, and for the most part trifling alterations, can be only explained by the venal spirit of a prince who sold without shame his judgments and his laws. The charge of the secret historian is indeed explicit and vehement, but the sole instance which he produces may be ascribed to the devotion as well as to the avarice of Justinian. A wealthy bigot had bequeathed his inheritance to the church of Emesa, and its value was enhanced by the dexterity of an artist who subscribed confessions of debt and promises of payment with the names of the richest Syrians. They pleaded the established prescription of thirty or forty years, but their defense was overruled by a retrospective edict, which extended the claims of the church to the term of a century, an edict so pregnant with injustice and disorder, that after serving this occasional purpose, it was prudently abolished in the same reign. If Candor will acquit the emperor himself, and transfer the corruption to his wife and favorites, the suspicion of so foul a vice must still degrade the majesty of his laws, and the advocates of Justinian may acknowledge that such levity, whatsoever be the motives, is unworthy of a legislator and a man. Monarchs seldom condescend to become the preceptors of their subjects, and some praise is due to Justinian, by whose command an ample system was reduced to a short and elementary treatise. Among the various institutes of the Roman law, those of Caius were the most popular in the East and West, and their use may be considered as an evidence of their merit. They were selected by the imperial delegates, Tribonian Theophilus and Dorotheus, and the freedom and purity of the Antonines was encrusted with the coarser materials of a degenerate age. The same volume which introduced the youth of Rome, Constantinople, and Berytus to the gradual study of the Code and Pandex is still precious to the historian, the philosopher, and the magistrate. The Institutes of Justinian are divided into four books. They proceed, with no contemptible method, from one persons to two things, and from things to three actions, and the article four of private wrongs is terminated by the principles of criminal law. End of chapter 44, part 4. Recording by Adam Ringeth.